thank you for joining us as we continue to study on spiritual depression. And it is really our joy to be able to minister the Word of God in a way that will help us, as Philippians 4, 4 says, to rejoice in the Lord always. Also, Paul says that sometimes we are sorrowful, but we're always rejoicing. And so we're excited to be able to minister the truths of the gospel uh, to people who uh, yearn to be encouraged in their faith in Christ. So uh, obviously, as every week, joined by Wes Treadway. Thanks, Wes, for uh, this time together. I'm glad to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Uh, you know, we've heard from many of you that this has been encouraging so far. And last week, we saw how important it is for Christians who are battling depression to preach the truth to themselves. In the pattern of Psalm 42, it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. We saw that the best truth to preach to ourselves is the central truth of the gospel, right? justification, by faith alone. Can you review some of that for us? Just to remind us kind of where we were last week as we set the stage for you. Yeah, the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 um, takes his soul in hand, as it were, preaches truth to himself. We in the spirit of the book of Hebrews, have better promises. We have better truth. We are further along in redemptive history than the Old Testament writers were. Uh, Christ has come. He's been born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, was raised uh, from the dead for our justification, the scripture says, uh, has ascended to heaven. The gospel is finished. The work is complete. And so, therefore, the truths of justification by faith alone, which the Apostle Paul articulated more clearly than any other biblical writer in the book of Romans, the glowing center of the gospel we have there in Romans chapter 3 and 4, that we are justified by the saving work of Jesus Christ by his death on the cross, uh, the fact that his perfect righteousness is imputed to us as a gift by faith alone, our guilt is lifted from us and imputed mysteriously to him, and he dies under the wrath of God. We stand, therefore, in a beautiful robe of righteousness for all eternity. In that righteousness, we will stand on judgment day. In that righteousness, we will walk for all eternity in heaven. That those truths are irrefutable. They will never be changed. Uh, they are ours, our treasure, and they are a solid basis for joy from now on into eternity. Those are the truths we should be speaking to ourselves, to our souls. O soul, rejoice. Your mm -hmm. sins are forgiven. You have been adopted. You have been, been uh, promised an inheritance in heaven. You've been given the, the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance. You have enough through Jesus Christ to be joyful today. Mm -hmm. So those are the truths of justification. That's good. And with that in mind, what are we going to zero in on tonight? Well, we're going to keep looking at the issue of our own sinfulness, and we're going to see how our own sinfulness and the guilt we feel for our sin is a, is a tool in the hand of Satan often uh, to bring us to depression. Uh, it is a very depressing, sad topic, probably the saddest that we face, our own sinfulness. It's a sad world that we, we live in, and we've seen evidence of human wickedness and sinfulness all around us all the time. But I would say, uh, for the most part, uh, we Christians are, the, the thing that makes us saddest and disappoints us the most is our own sinfulness. And so we're going to talk about, about sinfulness. We're going to talk about past sins, even grievous sins in the past and how they can be an avenue for depression. And then present patterns of sinfulness can be an avenue of depression. So that's what we're looking at tonight. So let's unpack that just a little bit more, if you don't mind. Why is our own struggle with sin often such a cause for depression? Why is that? 
Well, our sin tends to sever us from God in our own estimations. It's not true. Um, God knows that we're not severed from him. Uh, he is ours and we are his forever. Um, but we think we've been severed. We think that there's been a wall uh, put up between us and God. And so they, uh, our sins tend to sever us from the very one who can help us and minister to us. Uh, we also tend to revert to justification by works to get out of it. We feel guilty. We feel like we've got to do something yeah. to get back in God's good graces. And so we lose our theology at that moment and start becoming works-oriented. Like Adam and Eve, we tend to want to hide from God, you know, as he comes looking for us. We want to hide. We're hiding with the fig, fig leaves and behind the trees. And our sin also tends to make us very self-focused. We tend to do a lot of navel-gazing and become introspective in a very unhealthy way. Uh, it tends to make us not look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, which is what we should be doing. Uh, because uh, of this, we can be very depressed. Also, let's be honest, sin is evil. It is a very evil thing. Uh, it's grievous that we should sin. We're not minimizing that in this video today. We know that it's grievous. Our sins are great, but Christ's grace is greater. Mm. And we can tend to forget that. So those are some reasons why sin can be a, a very quick avenue to depression. So when we think about sin, I think uh, one who often comes to mind is, is Satan. Uh, how is Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, so active in the matter of feelings of guilt that lead to well, that phrase comes from Revelation 12. We have that picture of, uh, of the, the devil, that ancient serpent, um, Satan. All of his names are there in Revelation 12. And it speaks there in Revelation 12 in, in prophetic perspective of his fall from heaven. I believe that was his primordial uh, rebellion against God when he and his demons were thrown to the earth. And then he came in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve and Adam uh, towards sin. Well, Satan is there called the accuser of the brethren. So he is the accuser of, of Christians worldwide. In this, we need to notice how hypocritical he is. He is the greatest hypocrite there is because he is the greatest rebel there is. There is no creature uh, in the universe who has so sinned and so been so rebellious against the, the holy God as Satan. And yet here he is accusing us of sin. Also, he's very... Uh, intelligent. He knows the law better than we do. He's very aware of the commands of the law and how we have broken it. He's aware of our history. Um, he's able to use it against us. So Satan is very vicious um, in his accusations. Also, he's hypocritical in that he is the very one who secretly allures us to, to those sins. He's actively inducing us to, the, to that sin and then turns and accuses us of it. So we need to be aware of that. And I think it's one of the main categories of flaming arrows of the evil one Paul mentions in that spiritual warfare passage. We need to lift up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan's accusations are among those flaming arrows. Well, Andy, I'd love to read a passage from Zechariah 3. Um, the first five verses here, you read this for us. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him that language of accusation that we just talked about. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, 
I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Andy, how does this passage give us a beautiful picture of God's answer to those accusations we were just talking about? Well, first of all, Zechariah 3 and the accusation of Satan against the high priest uh, there um, is is a moment in time in redemptive history. And there's a lot of things I could do about what's going on there. I'm not going to do all that. I'm just going to take him as a sinful man whom the Lord has chosen, whom the Lord has justified, whom the Lord has forgiven. And then there's Satan standing to accuse him. Now, the word Satan is really a Hebrew word uh, for accuse, to accuse. It, it's a formal role in the court to be the Satan, is to be the prosecutor, the one who's bringing a charge. And so there is Satan, uh, actually the uh, the fallen angel, the, the devil, there to accuse. He is the accuser of the brethren. But what's so beautiful there is Almighty God defending this sinful man and rebuking Satan, the accuser. And I think this, this reminds me of Romans 8.33, which says, Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Or who, who dares to condemn? If God declares you not guilty, you are not guilty. But this pictures it. But it also pictures us covered in filthy robes. Mm. And so we have sinned. God knows that. He's, he's aware. It's not like he's, he's turned a blind eye to our sins. No, no, he's forgiven our sins and covered them in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's pictured by the command of a change of garments, uh, of beautiful ra uh, raiments, of garments, of radiant clothing put on this man who was previously covered in filthy so it's a picture of justification, a picture of Satan being rebuked by Almighty God. Ultimately, Satan, the accuser, will be thrown in the lake of fire and will spend eternity in heaven. So that's a good picture of how we can stand firm when we are being accused by the devil for our sins. Yeah, I love that picture, the recognition of the filthiness of the garments, but dealing with that and not just ignoring it, but actually dealing with that as well. Yes. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says that sometimes the sin that's dragging us down is that one sin some especially grievous thing in the past that we've done. We can never shake this overwhelming guilt that comes from that one sin. What are some examples maybe of that kind of problem in our lives? Sure. So Wes is referring to a book written by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. I love how the causes are plural, but the cure is singular. Mm -hmm. The cure is the gospel. Um, the causes are many. And, and in this case, it's not just generally sin, um, but that one sin, there's a chapter with that title, and it's referring to something in your past mm. that just continually hurts you. There's nothing you can do about it. It was really bad. Something very, very significant, perhaps, in the past. And it could be uh, perhaps a death of an individual that is your fault. Maybe you're a murderer, or maybe you, through um, negligence, uh, maybe while driving a car, somebody was killed, or there's some drunk driving or something in the past. So it could be something that big, and the person's dead because of you, and you just never forgive yourself. Or it could be sexual sin. It could be, um, it could be abortion. It could be, um, you know, all kinds of really grievous things in the past. And so these would be examples uh, that Lloyd Jones brings up of those things that people just can't. They feel that they can't ever forgive themselves for them. Um, and so that's something we have to address in this issue of spiritual depression. Yeah. I think it's important for us to address, too, I think of the power that that can have, if not dealt with, yeah. uh, to feed that deception, that lie that you can never be forgiven, that God's grace isn't mm -hmm. enough. 
you know, there's a story I heard, and it was during the ministry of, of um, Charles Spurgeon. This is a true story. It's not a sermon illustration. I've used it as an illustration. But uh, drunkenness was a big problem in London, uh, especially the drinking of gin. And uh, there's a story of this notorious drunkard in a particular uh, poor uh, area of London who um, destroyed his family by drinking away every shilling he ever earned. Um, he was a, a drunk and he was a, an abuser of his wife and children. And uh, anyway, he had a wife and he had some children, including a beautiful young daughter uh, who had a curable but potentially fatal, fat fatal illness. And uh, the money that he earned um, through his labor, he did not spend on her and she died. Um, and so the community around was so grieved and the, the time for the funeral was coming and uh, they wanted her to be buried in a beautiful little dress. So they basically passed the hat for um, this, this young girl and uh, they bought a beautiful dress that she could be uh, buried in, in her little coffin. Uh, the, the funeral was to be the next day. This man, knowing what the community had done, broke into the undertaker's home, opened the casket, took the dress off his dead daughter, sold it, and drank the money. He told Spurgeon the story after his conversion. Mm -hmm. This uh, man had come to faith in Christ and was just shattered by how he had dealt with his daughter. And there's nothing he could do about it. It's gone. The moment had passed. But he could never get past it. He could never forgive himself. And I, I remember reading Spurgeon's personal revulsion uh, in reference to this man, but then realizing the infinite magnitude of the grace of Jesus Christ and that Christ, our sins are great. They are great. The details are, are particularly dark. Um, but Jesus has looked into that darkness and has covered it in his blood. And it's pretty amazing. How does Paul's experience with the gospel and his words in 1 Timothy 1 help someone struggling with this kind of paralyzing guilt? Okay, so the Apostle Paul in, in I think, uh, 1 Timothy 1 is a tremendous section. I think we should we should read it. Maybe, Wes, I'll have you read it in a moment. But Paul's story is quite amazing. Um, but I think Paul must have had to deal with his past multiple times after the road to Damascus. It says in Acts chapter 8, that Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and threw them in prison. Now think about how the, the cries of the children, like you could have um, some parents separated from their children. Paul, zealous for the glory of God as he understood it at that point, separating families. Um, the cries of the mothers, uh, the, the ripping apart of mothers and their children, maybe even nursing infants, so that these uh, parents could be thrown in prison for believing in Jesus. You can well imagine those things echoing in his, in his mind a year or two or whatever into his Christian life. And so he was a great sinner. And 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17 in particular, is his uh, very condensed testimony of how it is that God showed him grace and mercy. And I think it becomes a pattern for people who just can't seem to get past what they've done in the past. So why don't you read Let it? Let me read that for us. So 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17 says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves 
full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How is Paul's testimony there? Because he talks about this idea of an example. How is it meant to be an example of Christ's unlimited patience? I like that phrase too, because when he talks about being the worst sinner and unlimited patience, he, he seems to mean it, right? That there's a lot of patience needed for, for my sin. Yeah, he's clearly presenting himself as an example. So the, the logic uh, that Paul's presenting is that if God can save me, he can save anyone. Mm. That's the logic that he's given, getting across. And, and he puts that in words. And I have used verse 15 multiple times in dealing in counseling with people who are struggling with spiritual depression, especially tied to their own sinfulness. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Just think of that introduction. You should fully accept this statement. Well, what is it, Paul? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the statement that you should accept fully. The reason Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary was to save sinners like you and me. And then he adds the words, of whom I am the worst. So I think it's important for people who are battling spiritual depression to meditate deeply on 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy saying. It's a foundational sta uh, statement. The reason Jesus came was to save sinners, and he will not fail in that mission. He will not fail. I think there is, uh, there's certainly to some degree a, a humiliation and a humility that comes from mulling over your past sins, and especially that one sin. But there could also be some kind of pride in it too. I am such a sinner as the Lord Jesus has never met. The magnitude of my sin is so great that I'm not certain he fully knows my case. And I'm not certain that his atoning blood is actually enough when it comes to me. Mm. The more you talk like that, you say, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute now, wait, wait. He talks here about unlimited patience. How about also unlimited grace? How about an infinite ocean of grace? I've likened it to our, our, our sin to fire like a match, or like a torch, or like a beach bonfire, mm. or like a, a raging inferno, like a, a, a skyscraper, top to bottom burning. Take all four of those and put them in the depths of the Pacific Ocean. What's going to happen? Extinguished. But the Pacific Ocean's finite. Jesus' grace is infinite. Mm. Our sins are great, but where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So we should not... I'm going to say it, arrogantly say, my sin is so great that even the atoning work of Christ is insufficient. We should not say that. So 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus is a great sinner, and he came into a great Savior, and he came in, into the world to save great sinners. Mm -hmm. So we need to see the unlimited nature of the atoning work. And then Paul adds very powerfully for me, of whom I am the worst. Mm -hmm. That is a statement that should cause your, your mind to kind of double back on itself and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Not I, you mean to say I was, I was the worst sinner. I was, but now I'm not anymore. No, he says, I am the worst sinner. I am the worst. So how do we understand that? Well, first, to some degree, I am the man who did those things. So that's, that is part of my history. Mm -hmm. That's true. But even now, I call myself the chief of sinners. Mm 
Well, why, Paul? Why do you say that? You've written the book of Romans. You've preached the gospel. You've done all these good works for the poor and needy. You've done miraculous healings. In what way are you now the greatest sinner? I don't really know the answer to that. But I would say that Paul would say this. Based on Romans 7, knowing the kind of raging sin I still see inside myself, Paul would say, the very thing I hate, I do. And the thing that I yearn to do, I do not do. And it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? What Paul's saying in all of that is, I'm aware of other people's sin. I can see it. But I am immersed in my own sin. And furthermore, to him who much is given from that person, much, much is expected. I've been given much. I've been caught up to the third heaven and seen God. I've, I've had all this benefits. I should be much better than I am. So that's the logic where Paul uses uh, saying, I am. Of all the pre people who are sinners, I am aware of my sin the most, and I call myself the chief of sinners. But Christ came to save me. And so it's a beautiful thing. It is beautiful. He begins with that, that idea of thanksgiving, and he yeah. ends with a beautiful doxology. I love the doxology that is at the close of this passage. Yeah. How do those two things give hope to people deeply depressed because of that one sin? So we're in a section here of 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Yeah. 12 says, I thank God. Mm -hmm. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to the economy faithful. I just thank Jesus. I just Spend all my time thanking the Lord Jesus. So I would say this is a, a quick remedy to spiritual depression. Just begin by thanking Christ Jesus, mm -hmm. your Lord. Just thank him for everything you know he's done for you. The more you thank him and thank him and thank him for blessings, the happier you're going to get. And then he ends with this amazing doxology. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's, here's an interesting piece of church history. Okay, this verse, 1 Timothy 1.17, was Jonathan Edwards' converting verse. Mm -hmm. This is the one that finally led him mm -hmm. to conversion as a young boy. This is the one meditating on a God like this converted him. So when we get to heaven, there'll be people that were converted by, you know, um, John 3.16. Lots of them, yep. you know, yep. whatever. But there's 1 Timothy 1.17. It may be that Edwards will be there with just a handful of, a small handful of people converted by that verse. <laughs> that specific verse. But just giving God the glory for your salvation. That's beautiful. So when we think about that one sin, I think perhaps we're thinking more historically, like a little further back, maybe something far in our past. But how can more recent patterns of habitual sin also lead toward depression? Yeah, habitual sin sin is very depressing. Uh, we feel very much uh, like we're slaves to sin, even though the Bible, Romans 6, says that we're no longer slaves to sin. We're set free. And that is a very, Romans 6 is a very powerful chapter on habitual sin. Very powerful. Because it tells you, it's your emancipation proclamation. You are set free from being a slave to sin. You are now a slave to God and to righteousness, not to sin. Uh, so don't act like a slave to sin. That's what we, we just need to preach that truth to ourselves. But habitual sin can be very, very depressing. It reminds me of a, a picture from Bunyan's um, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, an allegory that he wrote, and I refer to it frequently. I can't commend it highly enough. Um, he has so much to say about aspects of the Christian mm -hmm. life. In spiritual depression, there's actually two aspects, or two, two vignettes or accounts that we can talk about. Let's talk about the first one. Uh, Christian is in interpreter's house. An interpreter is showing him um, little kind of acted out vignettes, that really like living parables that teach him aspects of the Christian life. And he brings him to a man in an iron cage. Mm -hmm. And so that this man is very depressed and, and uh, he's depressing to look at. 
and in the account, um, uh, interpreter bids Christian to talk to the man, and he says, what are you? And uh, the man says, I am what I was not once, and well, what were you once? He said, at one point, I was one who professed faith in Christ, and I knew I was going to heaven, but now I know I'm not. And so this is a very strange encounter. And, and Christian says, well, how did you come into this cage? And he says, because of my lusts. I gave, I gave in to my lusts. I gave in to my sins, the mm. sins of the flesh. And I basically traded the celestial city for the sins of the flesh. And now I cannot get out. And then Christian says to him, but why don't you confess your sin? Why don't you ask God to forgive you? He says, God will not let me confess my sin. He will not permit me. He, he is the one who's locked me in this cage, and now I cannot get out. And so uh, it's interesting because um, Christian talks to interpreter about the man, and the man keeps saying, uh, interpreter keeps saying to the man, ask him, ask him, ask him. He's like, well, all right. So he, he goes over to interpreter and says, well, why won't, he can get out, right? All he has to do is confess his sin. God will is faithful and just to forgive us. Ask him. The thing is, what Bunyan's doing there is you can get yourself through habitual sin and the sins of the flesh, you can get yourself into such a place that you do not believe you can be forgiven. Mm. Now, what the actual state is, you don't know. You've sinned away your assurance. Now, I believe it's possible to still be on your way to heaven and sin away your assurance, but that's a rough way to get to heaven. And so the man in the iron cage, his actual condition, whether he actually can get out of the cage, is never resolved. Mm. It's never resolved. Now, we know that if you're justified, you can't sin away your justification, but we do believe you can sin away your assurance of justification. So the man in the iron cage, I think, is a picture of the dangers of habitual sin when it comes to spiritual depression and the loss of Christian assurance. Now, you said there were two pictures. Is okay. there another one besides the man in the iron cage? Okay, yes, there is. Uh, Christian and Hopeful uh, uh, and their experience in Doubting Castle, which I think is probably the worst experience that he ever had. Christian had a lot of bad experiences. He had a battle with Apollyon that was terrible. Mm -hmm. Apollyon representing a demon, I think, or perhaps even Satan himself. He has to go through the valley of the shadow of death. That's very difficult. He's had a lot of difficult trials but this probably was the worst. Mm. So what ends up happening is Christian and Hopeful are walking along the narrow path that leads to the celestial city, straight as an arrow. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard. It's getting very, very difficult. They're going up a hill, hill difficulty, something like that. They're going, and, and it turns that there's a, a, little, a little kind of comfortable path along the side called, called Bypath Meadow. And uh, Christian notices it and says, well, it's going right along the side and it's easier so he says to Hopeful, why don't we jump the fence here and then walk in and then we'll get back in later on when it gets a little bit easier. Hopeful doesn't want to do it. He says, this is not a good idea. We should not jump that fence. But Christian's older than him and he prevails upon him and he leads his brother astray. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is Bypath Meadow goes by degrees, little by little, further and further away from the true path. And as they go on, it gets uh, very stormy and dark. The night comes, there's a, a howling storm, wind, lightning, and there's a deep pit that another individual falls into. I won't get into that, but he falls to his death. So they're in, in danger. They can't go back. They can't go forward. They don't know what to do. And so they decide to hunker down for the night, but they're awakened in the morning by giant despair. And he seizes them. He's huge. 
and says they're trespassing on his land, and they and he hauls them off to his castle, Doubting Castle, and throws them in a dungeon. And there they are for four days without anything to eat or drink in the dark, stinking dungeon. And thus begins their battle with depression. And it's a picture of a, a deep spiritual depression. Giant Despair has a wife named Diffidence. It's really interesting, the, the names he gives her. And, and she keeps urging um, her husband, uh, the Giant Despair, to go down and kill him. And uh, so he goes down there with a crabtree cudgel, like picture a big baseball bat. And he goes down there and he beats them mercilessly, just beats them head to foot and foot to head to within an inch of their lives. And he cannot stop. He won't stop. He has no mercy on them. And then he begins at his wife's urging to give them means by which they can kill themselves. He gives them a dagger or a rope or some poison. And he's tempting them, openly tempting them to suicide. Uh, Christian's about ready to do it, but he's in discourse with his brother, hopeful. Now, he's the guy you want to be with. That's They're right. both down there, but hopeful. Castle, be with hopeful. Yeah. Hopeful never gives up hope. He's getting beaten up too, but he's like, let's not be our own murderers. I remember he says that. Let's not kill ourselves. It's not. This is not the way to go. God will do something. He'll get us out of this. Well, in the end... Um, Christian has a key in his breast pocket that he forgot about, pulls it out, and the key is called promise. And it's basically the value of scripture memorization and memorized scripture and scriptures you know that become a promise. And that key, amazingly, changes shape and size to fit any lock to get them out progressively of Doubting Castle. And they're able to unlock all of these things, these, these doors, and they get out of Doubting Castle. So that's the whole vignette. So, Pilgrim's Progress is incredible, right? The pictures, the images, it's so helpful for us because it gives us almost, almost tangible things that we're like, okay, I can kind of see myself in that situation or I could imagine what that must have been like because of the language that's used. What can we learn from that, though? From these two pictures, as we look at Christian and Hopeful and Doubting Castle, what can we learn about depression from these pictures? So what I get out of this first is stay on the path. Okay, yeah. just, you know, that's the one lesson in Pilgrim's Progress you know, never, ever leave the straight and narrow path. But obviously we can't proclaim, we can't preach sinless perfection. We know that we're going to sin, but sin can lead to depression. Um, another thing we learn is that depression is linked to doubt. It's Doubting Castle. They're in Doubting Castle. Giant despair, another word for depression, is beating them up, but it's because of their unbelief. So fundamentally, at the core of all spiritual depression is a basic unbelief of the promises of the gospel. And so what gets them out is the promises, believing the promises, trusting the promises of God. And so that's, that's, there's some powerful lessons. Also, just how vicious depression can be. It's really dark. It's really, it's really brutal, the beatings they get. And so there's a number of, those are a number of lessons. And that one other simple one is memorize scripture. Yes. And so use your, use your scriptures when you get into dark places. Yeah, having those promises at our disposal is huge. So Andy, maybe as a final thought, yeah. why is our own sinfulness no good reason for despair? Well, let's go back to what we said when we were talking about um, about the arrogance, really, of thinking that your sin is so great that even the grace of Christ is not enough. I don't think anyone would ever say that. They, they know that that can't be true. Well, if that's not true, then none of our sins are reasons for spiritual depression. They are reasons for sadness. You know, James does say, grieve, mourn, and wail. 
But there is a, a grieving that is redemptive and helpful, 2 Corinthians 7, and there is a grieving or depression that leads to death, like um, Judas's suicide. He knew he had sinned, but he had no hope. He had no trust in Christ, none of that, and committed suicide. So for me, what I would say is for a genuine Christian, a justified um, sinner, our sin is no good reason for depression because however great our sin is, Christ's grace is greater. Mm. Praise God. Andy, would you close our time in prayer this evening? I would love to. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study uh, some more aspects of sin and depression, discouragement. We pray that you would help our brothers and sisters that are watching this to fight spiritual depression. Maybe it's that one sin in the past, or maybe it's present patterns or habits of sinfulness now, that they would realize that however great their sins are, Christ's grace is greater, and his provision for getting out of the iron cage uh, is greater, uh, because we can break the, the uh, chains of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. You have that power to do that. So do that, and I pray that you lift the spirits and bring to genuine joy all who hear this. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.